0: Going to read Exodus chapter 2, 11 through 25 from the ESV. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today?
1: This is a challenging passage, as many are in this early part of the story. My perspective of it has expanded this week. I won't say that I understand it more fully or better, but it's expanded, and I wonder if it will for you. If it's not a new story, if it's new, then receive it as it comes. Uh, interact with the broader story of God, because it is a big story. I do believe the author, and I'll keep saying that, I've mentioned it briefly, that uh, it seems that there's many authors of this final text that we have, which has stood for thousands of years now, amazingly. Uh, but it seems that Moses wrote uh, much of the, maybe the initial draft of it in, in form. And then over those years, maybe centuries later, some editors came in, group, group of Hebrew scholars even, uh, to put this masterpiece together. All of that said, I do believe it is the text that, that God... Uh, Inspired and oversaw, and intends for us to have to understand him more fully and to understand uh, ourselves also. I believe the author wants us to see how Moses was becoming the one who God would use to deliver his people. This is God's story, it's not Moses of the story. God is. But we're starting to see the way and the lengths that God will go to, to redeem and rescue His people. Becoming that kind of a leader is costly, and it's not a linear path. Moses stumbles along the way, and yet to redeem even, even our lowest moments and our greatest mistakes but I see Moses in a maybe in a new light uh, through this story, and let's enter into it. Now, I think to be sure, Moses wasn't looking or expecting to be the leader and deliverer of the Hebrews, but we start to see a glimpse that he is deeply connected to them. His heart is with them, even though he has grown up now in Pharaoh's household with all of the privilege that comes, the luxury, the influence that comes from being uh, like a prince of Egypt and blessed in that way, uh, but he is deeply connected in heart to his people, the Hebrews. I think we see at least a glimmer of the heart of a leader in his heart for justice, his courage, and his sacrifice. Will he learn humility, meekness along the way, which is required? for a godly leader. Interestingly, decades have passed between verses 10 and 11. So we jumped into the middle of of chapter two here, and now decades have have passed with the simple line, Moses grew up. We're not told how long that is. Uh, Later uh, in scripture, the prophet, apostle Stephen, would say it was 40 years. He was around 40 years old already at this point. He's a man. Uh, That may have been just to simply segment Moses' life into blocks of 40. We'll see more. That number is kind of significant in the story of God. It's used repeatedly. Not, nevertheless, he is grown. Many years have passed between one, one verse. And that's kind of how this story goes. Uh, it starts out with centuries after Genesis ends. And then it zooms into some very specific moments in time. And then it fast forwards decades. And then it zooms into some specific moments where chapters are spent over the course of just a handful of weeks of events. So we'll see that kind of in-out rhythm uh, along the way. Here's our clue, verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people where he watched them at their hard labor. Literally, he went to his brother's. Certainly that would have meant brothers and sisters, but in the way that was written, it was brothers, his own people. So he had a a kindred spirit with him. He knew of his heritage at this point. We don't know when that became known to him because he was adopted as a baby boy, rescued from the river into Pharaoh's household. But he grows up, at least with a knowledge, that he is not Egyptian, he is Hebrew. And he goes out to his people And it says, he watched them at their hard labor. Remember, they're being oppressed by Pharaoh into slavery. And Moses' heart is with them. Now, the word used for watch here is really a seeing with compassion, a seeing with empathy. It's the same word that's used, ra'ah, at the end of chapter 2 in verse 25. God looked. Looked. God watched, God saw, and I think that's maybe a better translation. As Moses saw with a compassion the oppression against his people, his God, the God of Moses, saw his people, the Hebrews, with compassion and heart. I'd like to share one of my pet peeves in Bible translation and just reveal how much of a nerd I am. I'm not fluent completely in Greek or Hebrew, I did a lot more study in Greek, and so I rely on others for the Hebrew translation, but when I am studying a Hebrew passage, and maybe that's, that's news for some, the first two-thirds of probably what's in most of your hands or the Bible that we would we would say the Bible, the Old Testament, I like to say the First Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures because they were originally written in Hebrew. Over three thousand years ago, mostly I guess some a few a little bit newer, but let's just say, an ancient text. These are the scriptures. Anytime Jesus or the apostles refers to the scriptures, they're referring to these. These scriptures written in Hebrew. Jesus primarily spoke Aramaic and preached in Aramaic, but most of what we would say is the New Testament, which I would like to say is the Second Testament, or the Greek scriptures was written in Greek. Anytime we read in English, and there's many translations in English, they are translations. Here's my pet peeve. And I will read through an interlineary, at least if I'm studying a Hebrew passage, to see the Hebrew words and how they might be translated within the context. Within one story, and especially a couple paragraphs, like we're looking at today, If the same Hebrew word is used, why are we translating it with two different words? Truly, it it can mean, Hebrew words and Greek words can mean different things based on context, just like our English words do. But in this case, the word ra'ah, for see or watch, is translated differently in many of our English translations. Moses went out and watched his people at, the hard, at hard labor, and later God looked or God saw, not acceptable. <laughs> at least give credit to the original authors and editors that they recognize the words that they were choosing within the same passage, they should be translated with the same English word. Find a word that works because there's a meaning there that's being lost in this translation. Moses went and saw his people with compassion God also saw his people with compassion. We need to see the bookends here. And it happens again in this passage with the word nakah. I know that you're not interested in a Hebrew lesson here, likely. Uh, maybe some are, and we can chat afterwards. The word nakah can mean hit, strike, beat, or even more harshly, strike down in the sense of to kill. Thank you, Brenda. You read the ESV, but even the ESV struggles here. The NIV translates this same word, "naka," which shows up three times in this passage with three different English words, beat, kill, and hit. That's not the original author's intent. I'm certain of it. I don't know what the best English word is, but I say they should have stuck with strike. So that Moses witnessed an Egyptian slave master striking an Israelite. So Moses struck him. The next day, he goes out and sees two Israelites fighting each other, and one struck the other. I think there's two main reasons for this. It does happen repeatedly throughout our translation. So as we read, it is good to read various English translations and see the way that it's expressed but in this case, I think it's worth calling out because we lose something, not just the original meaning, as if the original author, there were other words he could have used if he meant something different. There's other words for kill in Hebrew than this word "naka," but he used it three times. Because later in Exodus, God will be the one to strike, to strike the oppressors. God will strike with justice and with accountability and with righteousness Moses enters into this story in the place of God. And he strikes. That's not his place. It is God alone's place to strike. So we lose something here in the translation. Thank you for bearing with me. And now, back to the show. We're not told how Moses came to learn of his heritage, but at this point, he knows of his heritage. His heart is with his Brothers and sisters, those in oppression under slavery. I used to read the story as, so. I mean, likely, he's there with his people observing. He has been, if he's 40 years old, he has been for years seeing the oppression. It's building up in him. And he's going out to be with them. We don't know what those interactions look like. We're not told. I used to read the story as he's just a little bit hot-headed or impulsive. He sees this oppression, and he's going to do something about it. He's going to react. Perhaps he grew growing up in Pharaoh's household, seeing the evil and the power of Pharaoh just leveled against others, disregard for life that was lesser than his. Perhaps Moses felt the same way. But that's not really what the text allows. There's a clue in the text that should make us at least pause with that interpretation, and it's expanded my perspective in a couple ways. Verse 12, So glancing this way and that and seeing no one he struck the Egyptian. He ends up killing him because it says he buried him in the sand, or at least mortally wounded and buried him. This was, certainly, there, there likely was this anger, and a, we would say a righteous anger. Oppression is happening against a helpless one, let alone his, his people, his kin. There's anger there. But he looks, he pauses to look and see, no, and I used to see Seeing that the coast was clear and no one's watching, he can take action. That's not a good look on Moses. This phrase shows up almost identically in Isaiah chapter 59, looking here and there. It's a phrase to capture looking to all places. It would be like looking over the earth, and that's what we see from God observing the world. This is Isaiah 59, verse 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. So the Lord, Yahweh, looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. Again, that's a translation, but if you line up these two phrases from Exodus 2 and Isaiah, they're, they're very similar. The Lord looked from here to there and saw no justice. No one to intervene. So God intervenes. I think Moses is looking through years of seeing oppression. Looking across the land and saying, there is no one. There is no justice. No one is coming for my people. This slave master specifically, perhaps, has callously put to death many has maybe mortally wounded another Israelite. And Moses essentially is saying, enough. There's no police to call. There's no justice system to wait upon. This oppression has been going on for decades. And he draws a line in the sand, proverbially, pun intended, and says, I will step in. Now, we we don't have to assume that he was trying to kill this man. But he's saying, enough. I will step in. And I, I think Moses, even if that was an, an anger response that had built up, is standing for justice. And like almost, whatever happens to me, so be it. I will lose my place. If anyone knows it, if anyone finds and maybe there, maybe there wasn't anyone that he was aware of watching, but he is willing to lose his place for justice in this case. No longer would he, if this is found out, no longer is he going to be welcomed into Pharaoh's house. Do we even know if Pharaoh knows that he is a Hebrew or has that been kept from him? We don't know. Moses steps in and strikes. Now, as we see the full story unfold, God's favor and kindness is toward Moses, even as it was in chapter 1 to Shifra and Puah, these midwives who stepped in for righteousness and justice to reject Pharaoh. They're at great risk to themselves. God was favorable to them. He's shown kindness, and He does to Moses. That doesn't mean that Moses was in the right here. We have to wrestle with that in the whole scenario. But I think in the broad story, it is God who is meant to strike. If anyone strikes, it is God, that justice ultimately is His. That doesn't excuse us. That doesn't mean wipe the hands and, well, let God take care of it. I see this injustice. I see this oppression. But that's up to God. It means lean in. It means stand firm. It means enter, fight with nonviolence. And I believe effectively we see throughout history that the greatest change comes through those agents who are willing to fight with nonviolence. And often it's equally as costly. Think of Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela. Or Mother Teresa in a different way. It costs greatly to enter into those places and to stand firm for righteousness sake. I believe we're meant to see that God is the one. If there's going to be a strike, a reckoning for justice against evil and against oppression, it is God's ultimately. We'll fast forward to the greater deliverer and greater redeemer in Christ in just a moment because Moses is not the hero of the story. He becomes a great leader, but it makes us long for a perfect one, a righteous deliverer who accomplishes victory and justice in a totally different way. So that's where we're going. Hold that in mind. Continuing the story, Moses is surprised now that he, and, and afraid that this news is found out. He goes out the next day, sees his, the Israelite brothers fighting, one striking the other. And you can almost see like, isn't there enough violence and oppression against you, and now you're bringing it against one another? Stop. And what's the response? I don't know if Moses thought, I've now intervened. I am advocating. I have drawn this line in the sand. I am one of them. And they respond, no, you're not welcome here. Who made you judge and jury? Who made you ruler over us? Now, there's a clear foreshadow if you know the rest of the story, because ultimately, God will. God will call him to be leader, ruler, and ultimately judge for his people. But it's not yet. It's not now. And I wonder if that shocked Moses. I'm here to intervene, to help, to take my privilege and power and bring it to you. And they're saying, you have nothing to do with us. How would you know? You grew up in the palace. And what are you going to do anyway? Kill all of the Egyptian slave masters? Your action is just going to make things worse for us. You can imagine them thinking that, and in a few decades, it would. Moses' intervention would make things harsher for them for a time. So he is denied. It seems like word has spread and not in a favorable way. Maybe Moses thought no one saw. Maybe, maybe he knew a few saw, but they were Israelites, so he was going to build this favor and this bridge of, of relationship with them. It does not happen His fears are now justified. Word spreads to Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts another hit on his life. It says he tried to kill him. Pharaoh seems pretty weak here. He can't kill a baby boy, Moses, and he can't kill the grown man, Moses. It's twice here in this story that he fails. It seems like Moses has at least nine lives, and maybe the author just wants us to see something is stirring about this guy. He's got some favor over him. Maybe there's more to the story, of course. There will be. So Moses flees to the wilderness and would spend the next 40 years there. And it's in the wilderness, the desert places, beginning with nothing, alone, under persecution, that Moses becomes formed into the man that God will call to go back and lead His people, and deliver His people. It's in that place, in that wilderness, and that can't be missed in the, in the whole broad story arc of both Exodus and really the larger story of God. This seems to be God's way. This story is repeated again and again. Maybe sometimes God sends us into those desert places. Sometimes we simply flee there or find ourselves there. Wandering, alone, lost, with no bearing. Other times, circumstances, oppression, trial, hardship happens, and we would describe our, our place as, I'm in the desert places. I'm parched. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm lost. I'm wandering. God, where are you? And it seems to be in those places, especially in our places of, where we recognize our own brokenness and hurt. Whether from our own choices or what's come against us, it seems to be in those places that God meets, that God restores, that God heals and mends if we will let Him in those hard places. That story is repeated again and again through the Scriptures. I think it's some of yours. Now, some of you have said, I've passed through that desert. I never want to go back there again. Others maybe feel in that place now. or wondering, am I heading into the desert place. But it seems, and I would encourage you if that is your story, that that is where God shows up, is with you, meets you, forms you. Perhaps He can't become our everything until we are brought to nothing. Notice God's kindness and favor upon Moses even if he is not saying, way to go, Moses, for intervening in the way that you did. He shows favor. He finds a place. He finds a home. He finds a wife. He finds a family. Now, there's an interesting weave to the broader story, and I'll quickly call them out. It's interesting that Moses flees to the Midianites. Midian was one of the sons of Abraham. So there's this long history in their story. Now, didn't come through Sarah. It came through another line. The Midianites become kind of a, a source of conflict with the Israelites. But this is where Moses finds his home among foreigners with a distant relation. Interestingly, it was the Midianite slave traders that brought Joseph down to Egypt in the first place. And now Moses is escaping Egypt and finding home amongst the Midianites. There's a little irony continuing in the story and a weaving to the broader story. Moses' Moses' story of finding family and ultimately a wife at the well should remind us of the ancient patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, who had similar stories. Jacob specifically, who fled home under persecution, found himself at a well amongst distant relatives and ultimately found a wife and a family. There is a story being weaved here. Jacob would find a new identity, ultimately, and so will Moses. Above all, I think the author is trying to foreshadow what's coming for Moses as the representative of all of Israel. Here is Moses fleeing his own personal exodus into the wilderness with nothing, finding a well, finding life, ultimately finding a family, a new identity, and being formed. He will meet God on the Mount Horeb in the next chapter, maybe the same mountain that Israel will meet God after they too are drawn out, hungry and thirsty, but find a well of living water in their God, are formed into a new people. There's a parallel story happening as Moses goes first, comes back, and leads God's people. And above all, maybe, Moses becomes a shepherd Unwittingly or not, he is at the well, and the daughters of Raul come, and there's other shepherds which apparently were jerks and denied them access. Moses steps in again for justice and righteousness, maybe again at risk of his own life. Maybe there's nothing more to lose in his perspective at this time. Drives them away somehow and feeds the flock, waters the flock, and then he's brought in to their Household. He becomes a shepherd, and then the shepherd will later guide and lead God's people, his sheep. The ancient shepherd would go first with staff, would lead out into the wilderness, out looking for water, out against the predators, and the sheep would follow. This becomes the picture of Moses, and maybe for the next 40 years, he is a shepherd. He's a foreigner in a strange land. He is being formed into a new kind of person. God is not done with him yet. God has not given up on him in his lowest moments, maybe in his worst mistakes. God will refine and form his heart over these years, and it will take years. This is one of the ways we can enter into this story. That God is with us, even when we don't sense Him with us. He will not give up on His people. His love is unwavering. His grace and mercy and desire to work in us and use us for remarkable things. And the least and the last, the least likely ones, are the ones that often He raises up into positions of incredible influence. So if you think of yourself that way that way, what could I ever do at this stage of life, at this place, at this time? My time is past, it's over. Moses was 80 when he was called back to deliver his people. Maybe it's not too late for anyone. This makes us foreshadow into the broader story, as I hinted at. Moses, the prince of Egypt, becoming a lowly, fugitive shepherd. In this humble position, he becomes the deliverer that God will use. Not a linear road, not an easy path, but God meets him and raises him up. Grace upon grace. Jesus, the prince of heaven, leaves his home to become a lowly shepherd, the good shepherd. The great shepherd. He too becomes rejected by his own brothers, his own family, his own people. John 1.1, 1, 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus also would withdraw into the wilderness. The Greek word eremon, which we saw through our study in Mark, he would withdraw regularly into the wilderness to meet with God. Famously, in 40 days after his baptism, he would fast and meet with God, where He faced opposition and oppression. Forty days? Why forty days? Because it's the continuation of a bigger story. And where God's people spent forty years in the wilderness, as Moses did, to be formed, and they struggled, and they doubted, and they failed, and they needed to learn to trust, Jesus triumphs, resists all oppression, and comes out to lead his people into greater deliverance than Moses would lead his people. Jesus comes as the shepherd, the greater Moses, the greater deliverer, guide, protector, and shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep, John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the full. This is his purpose, statement, and mission for protection and life and deliverance for all who would follow him. For I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus looks and sees the oppression of his people, namely under sin and evil and Satan, he does not strike as Moses did. He surrendered. He laid down his life to gain a greater victory. He knew God was writing a much bigger story, that it was God who was the one who would bring justice and righteousness. When Jesus himself was struck and mistreated, he did not strike back. 1 Peter 2, 23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. And he becomes our model when we see oppression and injustice, when it even comes against us, that we are meant to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, to look to enter in, to stand for righteousness, to defend, to call out injustice, but to ultimately trust the one who is writing the big story of deliverance, of justice, of righteousness, of rescue, and of healing. Jesus is a different kind of deliverer. We don't worship Moses today. Thank you, Jesus. The larger story is being written. Exodus chapter 2 ends with this reminder. Chapter chapter 2, verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt dies. Another one rises into his place. But that king dies. The Israelites continue to groan out in their slavery, crying out to God. They have not given up in their lament to a God who hears after centuries of sensing His absence, of injustice against them reigning. They have not given up. That is incredible. Certainly they have wavered and doubted and wondered Can anyone relate? Are we in a similar place in our world today? And yet God heard, always heard their groaning and remembered His covenant with Abraham. Now that word we should call out, when God remembers something, He's not aloof, He's not forgetful. That means action takes place. God steps forth in His promise. That's what remembering does in the biblical story. Remembering leads to action, to a truth and a promise that previously existed. When we as His people are called to remember the covenants, the promises of God, remember who your God is, it's not, oh yeah, I've forgotten. It's remember for action's sake, remember for change's sake, because truth has been unwavering. So God looks upon the Israelites' with compassion. He sees them in their distress. God has not been mysteriously absent. He's been mysteriously present all along, seeing, hearing, remembering. His eyes are upon them. His eyes are upon us. His eyes are upon all who are oppressed and enslaved in our world, who are hurting and suffering and marginalized. And He will strike in a way that we must only trust God's ability to strike in His infinite grace, love, patience, mercy, somehow held in the paradox of that is His justice and accountability for evil, is His love, mercy, and compassion. And we must come to trust Him and worship Him even when we cannot fathom or understand his ways, and his will. It's what we're invited into. Now, for Israel, it must have seemed that he was incredibly slow in coming for justice and deliverance. At least Moses did something. Where is God? He was yet to come. It seems that this is often and maybe exclusively, the way that God intervenes and works with His people, waiting from our perspective far too long to the point of completely giving up or walking away from any semblance of faith when it seems most unexpected or unlikely. And perhaps that's true for a people Perhaps that feels true in our own individual lives. How long, O Lord, becomes the cry of those oppressed and suffering. Perhaps we have experienced acute loss like Moses, Israel would, Job before them, Jesus himself, position, prestige, power, relationships, perhaps great loss. Perhaps we've simply lost our footing of faith. The God that we thought we were following is no longer the God that we believe in. The God that we were told we should follow seems not like a God at all. Perhaps we haven't found Him yet, and we're still in that wilderness place. But remember, God has not left His people. God has not left you. Don't give up. Don't stop walking with Him, pursuing Him. He will lay down his life. He has done it. This is our God throughout history, our God who has not changed. Tomorrow may be the day he intervenes in a miraculous way beyond what he's done for hundreds of years. Tomorrow may be the day. May it be today. But we have to be reminded, remember, remember, God has intervened. He has remembered His covenant. He has entered in. Jesus the Deliverer has come. He has stood up to evil and injustice, the greatest foes, and delivered His people. He is the Good Shepherd. He has already accomplished it. So His promise for, I will again, must ring true by faith. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.11, and we'll wrap up with this, "'Therefore remember, people of God, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ.'" For he himself is our peace. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. We're called to remember. Remember this for action's sake. To draw near to God. We do that now. Maybe you've been doing that all morning, I hope. Maybe now you become aware of drawing near to Him, remembering His covenant and His promise. We get to do so through song, through sung prayers, through your prayers from your heart. We get to do so through coming to the communion table. If you're a guest with us, the table is open for all who are desiring to walk near to God, to draw near. Regardless of where you sense your faith and belief is today, Jesus beckons, come. Start the journey again. Start it for the first time. We have gluten and vegan free loaf so that all can come to the same table. We believe that's the heart of Jesus. If you are desiring to walk near Him, regardless of your past, regardless of your decisions, regardless of the worst things you have done, God's grace is upon you. He has accomplished your healing and your freedom if you will trust Him and walk toward Him. And by our remembrance of this today for what Christ has done, His body broken, His blood shed upon the cross, and His victory through the grave as we've already sung about, as we remember this and we walk out these doors and into our day and into our week, may we walk with Him. May we look and watch with compassion to his people, with praying for his heart to see those who are hurting and oppressed. And instead of saying, What can I do? I can do nothing, and walking the other way, saying, How do I extend a hand? Not to strike, but to bless. How do I step into that place of advocacy or simply a voice of truth that yours alone may mean very little? But unless that voice starts to be heard and shared and harmonized with, we cannot make the kind of music that God wants to make to bring unity for his world. Let's remember who our God is, his amazing grace. Let's walk in humility. God, we pray we would learn humility and meekness. We pray that we would be bold people as well, that we would know how to stand for justice and righteousness and enter in. That can only come through your heart. So first we pray, God, again, fill us through the power of your Spirit. Forgive us, God, for how quickly we turn and waver from your will and way. We turn back again today. Thank you for grace. You delight in the coming of your children to you. Your grace is that big. Your mercy is that rich. We receive it again anew. Thank you for these reminders through your word, through these songs that we have been singing. We pray we are reminders to one another that we walk with an amazing God. So meet us, heal us, speak to us, protect us, provide for us, lead us, God. We pray in the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.